Hey, good morning, 11 o'clock service at Rocky Peak. How we doing? Oh, I love it when the caffeine has kicked in. Well, whether you're here in the worship center or you're joining us over in the ridge, welcome to Rocky Peak. Welcome to the thankfully air-conditioned Church of Rocky Peak. It is good that you survived and didn't straight up melt this past week. We're glad to have you, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Special welcome to you. I hope the Lord meets you in a powerful way this morning. We're going to go into our time of teaching. If you open up those programs you got, inside there is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with the teaching. Also a great tool to help you write down on anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to open up in prayer as we often do, but this morning what I want to do is I want to focus our prayer specifically on what's been going on in the Houston, Texas area. Like me, many of you have been following just the devastation that Hurricane Harvey has brought through that area. So as the body of believers, we want to stop and we want to commit them to the Lord and just ask for provision. But one other thing I want to highlight, we sent out an email about this about two days ago. One of the best ways that we can mobilize as the church is to give financially to give to some many organizations that are doing well. One specific one we want to highlight as Rocky Peak is the Children's Hunger Fund. They are an organization that we've partnered with many times in the past that has an awesome global reach. They work through and empower the local church. And specifically, the Children's Hunger Fund actually has branches out in Texas. And so they already have some networks of churches they work with there. So if you're interested in donating through them, my family and I did that yesterday afternoon. Just go to their website, childrenshungerfund.org, and and there at the very top, you're going to see a blue button that says Harvey Relief or Harvey Donations, and it's an easy process from there. So with that, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you that in these times of disaster, we thank you that in these times of pain and these times of suffering, we thank you that in these times of confusions and questions and not knowing what the future brings, we thank you that those remind us about the truth of you that's never going to change. We thank you that regardless of what's going on, you're good. We thank you that regardless of what's going on, you are for your creation. We thank you that regardless of what's going on, you provide for your people. And Father, I thank you that you are present with the people in Texas and Louisiana and any other area that's been affected by this hurricane. So as we lift them up as the body of believer, I want to pray for a few things, Lord. One, I want to pray for provision financially and through materials. As people are wondering how they're going to financially rebuild their life, I want to pray that you mobilize the church and any other organization to generously give sight unseen to people we don't know to help them rebuild, to help them restore their lives. Father, I want to pray for provision. I want to pray that you continue to provide a courage amongst the first responders, not just the Texas first responders, but from many states that have sent some of their best and brightest to be able to help. I want to pray for, I want to thank you for the response of just the neighborhood of people that have owned boats or have owned uh, furniture stores that have opened them up. I want to thank you for the response of the local churches in those areas as I've seen news images of churches opening up their doors, of churches providing meals, of one pastor in particular who was on top of submerged cars to make sure that there wasn't anybody trapped inside. Father, more importantly, I want to pray that you provide them a peace that surpasses all understanding. I want to pray that you open up their eyes to see that you are present, that through this time of disaster, that some of them would know you deeper, that some of them would know you for the very first time. We've seen how you work through tragedy, God, how you change lives through it, and we pray for transformation in those areas right now. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we can give. Thank you that you are on the move. In your son's name, everybody said, amen. amen. 
Well, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you again. I want to take a few minutes here at the top to bring you up to speed. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue this series that we've been in for the last several weeks called Unfiltered, Revealing the Character of the Kingdom. Now, this series is actually the second mini-series or the second season, if you will, of a longer journey called Unfiltered. And so our overall goal behind this long journey is that what we want to do is we want to stop seeing the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, through what we call filters or distortions that we place on him through many different ways in our upbringing, in our experiences, and in our lives. What often happens is that we end up creating a Jesus in our own image or of our own liking. And so the goal of Unfiltered is to remove those filters to see the real Jesus. And our primary tool for doing that is to go back to the first century and study one of the earliest biographies we have of the life and teachings of Jesus, the very first book in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, this series in particular has been focused on the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, kicks off Jesus teaching arguably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. What has happened is Jesus has gone viral, and so he has attracted large amounts of crowds. But out of these crowds, his disciples are stepping out of those crowds to listen to his teaching and leading. And what Jesus is proclaiming is that the long-awaited kingdom of God, in which God would return to his people, in which God would right all of the wrongs that were done by sin, that era and that kingdom has come now in the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus is describing what he does to transform our lives as his followers. And as he describes this new kingdom living, he's telling us that it takes a different type of person, a new citizenship to inhabit this kingdom. And so Matthew chapter 5 starts off with a series of eight provocative statements that are called the Beatitudes. That's the Latin word for blessed. And so what Jesus is describing is the character of a transformed individual who is following after King Jesus, the new character of his kingdom. And so with that, if you got your Bibles, open them up, got your apps, turn them on. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. If you're following along in your note sheet, you got a section titled, The Seventh Beatitude, The Peacemakers. And so as we've done every week in this series, we're going to start at verse 1 and work our way down. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says that now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. If you were with us last week, you remember that I emphasized that phrase, came to him. If you weren't here, would you underline or highlight those three words? Because it's a beautiful picture and it's a charge of what our lives as disciples look like. As disciples, each and every one of us, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are committing to rise up and to step out of the crowd to follow his leadership and his teaching in our lives. And then in verse three, he begins to teach the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What we covered last week, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So let's pause right there and a couple things I want to highlight. First of all, if you're new or if you've missed any weeks in this series, always want to encourage you, would you go to our YouTube page, just search the Church at Rocky Peak, and would you watch any of these messages you've missed? Because they add beautiful context as to what it means to 
now be a part of King Jesus's kingdom. But the second thing I want to highlight as we go through these Beatitudes, one thing we've been highlighting this whole series, if you notice that these are describing a completely different type of person. This is not business as usual. This is not Dre 2.0 or with a slightly better improvement. This is a completely transformed person. And that is the key characteristic of Jesus and his kingdom is that he transforms lives. He transforms us. Then we go to verse nine, which is our beatitude, our topic on the table for today. Blessed are the peacemakers. Would you underline or highlight that phrase in your Bibles or apps? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Would you underline or highlight those last three words? Children of God. And so what we want to do as we unpack this is we want to do what we've been doing this whole series. Being a peacemaker is a core characteristic of a transformed life. Being a peacemaker is a core characteristic of kingdom living now that Jesus has come in. So we want to ask those key questions. What does it mean to experience or have peace in general? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And what does that look like in our daily lives? And so similar to what I did last week, what I want to do to be able to unpack for this is we're going to start with the word and the concept of peace, and we need to look at it in two areas. One, we're going to start off by looking at how do we interpret, how do we define peace today in 2017, see what our filters are, begin to remove those, and then head into the second area, how did Jesus's original audience understand what he was saying? How did a first century Jewish audience understand this concept and teaching? of peace and therefore what it meant to be a peacemaker. So let's start with today. So rhetorically in your heads, I want you to do something. Just think about what does it mean to have peace? How do you define that? Is there any imagery or symbols that are associated with that? And I want you to do that by pulling religion out of this as well. Just in general, how do you define peace? For me, I come immediately to a pretty simple definition. Peace is the absence or the ceasing of war and violence. A lot of you would agree with that, right? Peace is the absence of hostilities, is the ceasing of anger, is the ceasing of violence. And with that, some imagery comes to mind. The circular peace symbol itself comes to mind that I often have seen. This hand signal, people, not just for posing in photos, but what it means and what it represents. Some cultural things come to mind as well that back up this definition. John Lennon famously sang a song, Let's Give Peace a Chance, back in the 70s. As a kid who grew up out here and lived through the 1992 LA riots, I remember Rodney King's famous plea for peace, can't we all just get along? So we would all probably agree that when we think of peace in 2017, we mean the absence of war, violence, hatred, bitterness, all of that, and that is a good thing. But there's also one key distinction we need to make. When we think of peace today, most of us, if not all of us, would view peace as a man-made thing. Peace will happen as a result of our efforts. Peace will happen as a result of our actions. Now, some of us might associate that with spirituality, but to the world at large, to achieve peace, to have peace, you don't need a spiritual connotation. 
creation, peace is just the result of man's efforts. So that's how we would often see it today. And so now let's trans transition into Jesus' first century Jewish audience. And so what we're going to see is that our definition, the absence of peace, the absence of violence, very much was an aspect of how they understood peace. But what we're also going to see is they understood and defined peace as something much bigger, as something much deeper, and as definitely something very, very spiritual. And so to really understand how they understood this teaching, why this was such a revelatory teaching, we need to remind ourselves what was the state of the first century world that Jesus is talking to. And if we look at first century Israel, what we see is a world that is very divided, is a world that is very fractured, is a world that very much is living in the absence of peace. And so let's look at two key areas of this division. First of all, when we look at Israel, we'll look at what's the state of government to the nation of Israel at this time. And for hundreds of years, they have been living under the oppression of, for, of foreign rulers and foreign powers. At this point in history, at the time of Jesus, they're living under the Roman government, which is a pagan government that is actively taking steps and making efforts to erase Jewish culture and erase Jewish Jewish religion. Through a process called Hellenization, they are in essence trying to convert the Jewish people to live a Greek and Roman lifestyle with their cultures, their values, and their beliefs. So that's one area where we see fragmentation and the lack of peace. Another area where we see division and a lack of peace in the Jewish nation at this time is in the area of religion itself. See, when you look at first century Judaism, there are a lot of sects or camps within that. When we look at scripture, we're introduced to, 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 uh, to, to groups of people such as the religious leaders, the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish ruling council, who very much were teaching what we call a works-based salvation. If you want God to love you, if you want to be holy, if you want to be pure in his sight, then you need to follow a million rules and you can't break a single one. But let's face it, you're never going to be as holy as we are. So that was one camp in first century Judaism. And then you had another camp that held on to the Old Testament scriptures, that believed in what it was saying, the true characteristics of God. These were the Jewish people that were likely to follow a teacher like John the Baptist, who would be likely following Jesus and be the people stepping out of the crowd. Then you had another group of people like the Essenes, who believed in maintaining purity and did not want to be Hellenized or mixed with Roman culture or government. So they separated themselves. They went and created a new society in the wilderness and in the, king, in, in the caves. Then you also had a group of Jewish people who were just indifferent. Faith in Yahweh was, yeah, I believe in that, but it was more because of my culture. It didn't stir them one way or another. Then you had another group within Judaism that completely abandoned it and embraced the Greek and Roman culture. Then you had another group within Judaism, the Zealots, who held on to their culture so tightly they were willing to kill and assassinate and try to topple the government on their own. And so do you see that we are coming into a world that is very fragmented? that is very divided. And above all, in first century Judaism, one of the biggest filters and distortions that occurred in this culture wasn't how they viewed the Messiah. For many of these camps, they had viewed Messiah through a filter that told them that peace would come 
as Messiah came as a war hero who would march into Rome, who would topple that earthly kingdom and build a new kingdom, and peace would come to the nation of Israel alone, and we would live here on earth in a new political dynasty. And so as Jesus is teaching this beatitude, we need to understand the big picture, that what Jesus is doing is what he does best. He is refocusing us. He is refocusing us by taking us back to the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and reminding them and teaching us today how peace was understood and defined in the Old Testament. And so to understand what peace means, we need to look at the Old Testament and we need to understand and embrace what the word shalom means. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And in the Old Testament culture, shalom carried a wide variety of connotations. See, you would wish shalom or you would wish peace on an individual. You would wish wish for shalom nationally. You would wish for shalom in your friendships and in your relationships. You would wish for shalom in your health, in your work, in your security, in your general well-being. The pursuit of peace in the Old Testament was 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 a high priority. And so shalom became their common greeting and their common farewell well. When they would say hello or goodbye, they would say shalom. And what they were saying was peace be with you. Or similarly, how we in today's age, when we greet someone, we go, hey, how are you? When they would say shalom, they could also mean, do you have peace? Have you been experiencing peace? And when we define shalom from the Old Testament, we see that shalom, this peace is a state of harmony a desired state of harmony within relationships. But one key that the Old Testament teaches is that no state of shalom is more important than the state of peace, the state of harmony between us and Yahweh, God the Father. Because what's understood in the teachings of the Old Testament is that the peace and the shalom that God the Father brings is one of salvation. That the peace that God brings is one of restoration, is one of forgiveness, is one of grace, is one of restoring our identity, is one of removing the darkness, is a peace that brings light and transformation. And so that is a key differentiator than how many people see peace today, where today we see it as the effort of man. In the Old Testament, shalom was not considered the outcome of human effort, but shalom was the work of the Lord. And when the Lord did the work of peace and our lives, when he would bring shalom, that would then overflow into all of our other relationships as we continue to pursue peace and harmony. I can now have shalom. I can now have peace with my family, with my neighbors, with my friend, because of the shalom that God has given me through salvation and restoration. And one one other aspect that's beautiful in this teaching in the Old Testament is that the state of shalom was a reminder of a key character of who God is. God gives us peace. God restores shalom because he is peace, because he is the shalom. And so being in a state of shalom is a reminder of who God is. And an important aspect of the narrative of the Old Testament 
an important aspect of the narrative of all of Scripture in general, but for our purposes, we focus on the Old Testament, is the, is the truth that God is the ultimate peacemaker and that God would return the shalom, would restore the shalom to a people who had lost it because of sin. See, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our treason, we lost that state of harmony. We rebelled and we ran away. If you were here last week, do you remember as we defined sin, we went to John 10.10. Do you remember those three words that we used to define sin? Sin steals, sin kills, and sin destroys. And those three things are the opposite of peace, are they not? And so as a people... We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the nation of Israel's history. That so often as a nation, they missed out. They were kept from that state of shalom because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. We see that in our own lives today. We see that in many in our churches and in our nation, that so often we are not experiencing God's shalom because we are choosing rebellion. We are choosing sin. And so what we see in the Old Testament is that God's covenant with Israel in which the kingdom was promised to come is a covenant of peace. That through Israel, God would restore shalom to all of creation. And what I want to do is there on your note sheet, what I've done is I've highlighted six verses that show us this narrative and this journey through Scripture from both the Old and the New Testament. And I want to go through them pretty quickly just to give us an idea of this narrative of peace and shalom. Now, I want to give you a couple, a couple of heads up before we go in. One, we're going to go through this kind of quickly, so it's going to be, feel a little bit like you're drinking from a fire hose, and that's okay. The second thing I want to let you know is that we are just scratching the surface. I'm giving you that 30,000-foot up view of this, but I want to at least give you an idea of this narrative that the kingdom brings peace and shalom. So there you know she's starting with Psalm 85. You look at, from the beginning, the psalmist is declaring our need for restoration. Restore us again, God our Savior, and I will listen to what, uh, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises what? Peace. peace. Underline that. He promises peace, restoration, salvation to his people. Then we go to the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Let's pause right there. Does that scripture sound familiar to any of you? Let me do a quick sidebar. That scripture was not written for the month of December. That scripture was not written solely to be tied to a, ho to a holiday. That scripture was given to us to describe what the Messiah would give. That is a scripture not for a time of year, but for all of eternity. So as we remove that filter off the scripture, let's go back to it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jump down to Zechariah, and it says that he, the Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations to all nations. So this shalom, the restoration, was not just for Israel, but for all people. Then we transition into the New Testament. John 14, as Jesus himself is talking about the transformation that comes with the kingdom, he talks about how we are now the place where the Holy Spirit would dwell. And with that, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. 
I do not give as the world gives, meaning temporarily in that it would end. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Those last two characteristics, being troubled, being afraid, they are the opposite of peace. And Jesus is reminding us, I have come to restore you. I have come to bring you shalom. Then we go to the book of Romans as the Apostle Paul is talking to these early, the early movement, to these Christ followers who are wondering, do we focus on our outward or do we focus on the inner, inward? And with that, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then the final verse there as we go to the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is talking about how this new peace, this restored shalom makes one humanity out of all of us, that we are all now kingdom citizens, regardless of your story, your background, and your shortcomings because of the work of Jesus. And he says there, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, the two being Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace. Would you underline that? Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And so as we look at this narrative of the kingdom and shalom throughout scripture, we are reminded that now that Jesus has come, now that this new era of the kingdom is here, shalom is once again possible for the followers and disciples of Jesus because of the work, because of his work. Now with that, I want you to go back and look at verse 9 of Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so now that we understand how the Lord is refocusing us to understand peace, do you see who is he directing this verse to? He's talking to us, Christ followers, and he's directing this to us. As Messiah has done, now that Messiah has come and restored the shalom to you, so you as God's followers will go and share the message of the kingdom and peace to others in the world around you. The character of God is one of peace, is one of shalom. Now as his transformed children, that is a core part of your character too. A core part of your identity is his peace, his shalom. And our call is to go into a world that is living without peace and to point them to the ultimate peacemaker in the presence of Jesus. And what's the consequence of living this new life of being a peacemaker? Well, it's the end of verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. See, in a family that's working the right way, what ends up happening is that the kids become reflections of their parents, becomes reflections of the best parts of their parents. In a family that's working and imparting well, what happens is you can see who a parent is based on the life and actions of a kid. Let me illustrate this in my own family. If you know me, then sight unseen, you know my father. Because my fa I'm very much my father's son. Out of my siblings, I'm the youngest of three. I'm the one that's most like my father. And so if you look at key characteristics of my life, they are so because that is who my father is. One, by looking at me, you automatically know that my dad is incredibly good looking because I have dashing good looks. 
second thing that many of you know about me is that I am a heavy introvert. That's just how I recharge, and I get that from my father. My father is a heavy introvert. Third, I have always, my whole life, found myself lost in books. I love to learn. I love to process and think and study, and I get that from my father. A fourth characteristic is my ability to teach. The fact that I've, my whole life I've been comfortable in front of people, even though I'm an introvert, is something I get from my dad because he's always been a type of teacher and communicator himself. Fifth, my humor comes from my dad. The fact that I am bitingly sarcastic is because he is bitingly sarcastic. And my whole life, my mother has used this phrase with me, that you are just like your father. And at times, that's been a good thing that she's been saying, and at times, it's been a negative phrase that she's been saying. But again, I'm his son. I reflect him. But I also see it now in the generations coming after me now that I'm a parent myself. See, my oldest son, my five-year-old, what I see in him is that he intentionally wants to reflect me. He wants to have my interests. He wants to look like me. He wants to approach life that way. And that has given me a deep understanding of the weight of being a parent. But I see it generationally in my family structure that we reflect our parents. And so in this case, regardless of what your earthly family structure was like, whether it was good, bad, um, whether it brought joy or it brought pain, as a follower of Jesus, we have a perfect spiritual father. And when we choose to follow after him, when we listen and obey and allow him to transform us to be more and more like him, we are embracing our parentage. We are embracing our identity as sons and daughters of God. And so as he teaches, blessed are the peacemakers, by living that out, we are showing the world that we are proudly God's children. Now that's our passage today. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack this, especially the concept of how do we become peacemakers any further? Because I got to say, I wish this was a teaching that we could just say, hey, let's go be peacemakers and we could flip a switch and do it. But being a peacemaker is difficult. Being a peacemaker is a journey. And so we want to acknowledge that. And so with the time we have left, what I want to do is I want to unpack three practical steps Three things we need if we are going to become the peacemakers we've been called to be. So there in your notes, you got a section titled The Seventh Beatitude, Three Steps. And the first step, the first fill-in is this, perspective. If we are going to rise up and become the peacemakers we've been called to be, then the first thing we need to do is we need to gain perspective. And what I mean by that is we need to fix our eyes on God's bigger picture, on God's bigger story, on the bigger truth about the kingdom that Jesus has brought into our time and space. And let me talk a little bit more about what I mean by perspective. See, sin, when it came into our lives, it damaged us in many different ways. One of the key ways in which sin damaged us was that it narrowed our vision, Sin puts blinders on in our lives and makes us unable to be able to see God's bigger story, God's bigger picture, and makes us unable to be able to gain perspective of what God is doing and what he's calling us to do. And there's a key danger in that. When we have a narrow vision, when we lose sight of God's perspective, what happens is our key filter, what we use to process and determine our thoughts and actions becomes pride. Because when we have a narrow focus, 
God stops becoming king, and all of a sudden, I fill that void. My opinions, my thoughts, my actions, my beliefs, my intelligence, whatever it is, I start putting all of that weight in myself. And so now how I see the world, again, that narrow view becomes truth and it becomes law. And so my pride becomes king regardless of actual truth. So let me illustrate how this, how this plays out. Um, football season is kicking off. Anybody excited about football season kicking off? College football, college football kicked off officially this weekend. NFL is about to kick off, um, about to kick off the regular season. I'm very excited for the NFL season. Even though I've grown up here in Southern California, I'm a lifelong San Francisco 49er fan. They're my team, and I am, I am not used to cheers for that. That is... Thank you for that. Now, I know we all have different teams, and I respect that, unless you're a Patriots fan. That's just, that's just supporting pure evil right there, and I hope that you repent. But I, can, I need to be honest about my precious 49ers. We are not a good team. Objectively, we are not. Last season, we went 2-14. and 14. If you need that spelled out a little clear, we won two games, and we lost 14. You don't even need to be a sports fan to know that is not good. <laughs> now, there's a lot of reasons for that. We had coaching issues, quarterback issues, injuries, all of that. But objectively, we are not good. But now, at the beginning of the season, if you were to ask me, how do you think your Niners are going to do? Sincerely, 100% belief, I'm going to tell you they're going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and why am I going to tell you that? Because that is what I choose to believe. I am choosing to narrow my vision and not see things like facts, not see things like truth. I am cutting all of that out and I am trusting, I'm shooting from the hip here and I'm going to go, they're going to win, which statistically is impossible. However, if somehow they do win, remember this day. <laughs> September 3rd, 2017, hashtag Dre was right. I'm a miracle worker and it happens. But the reason I share that is that's what pride does in our lives. It narrows our vision and it keeps us from seeing God's truth. And so hear me very clearly on this. If, we are, if you are not growing spiritually, if you feel stagnant, if you feel far from God, if you feel like you're not hearing God like you maybe once did, often the reason is because we've lost sight of God's bigger picture. It's not that God has disappeared or is that God has vanished. It's because our vision has been narrowed. And so we need God to take those blinders off and again, give us perspective as to what he's doing. Now, this is true in so many areas of our, as our walk as Christ followers. But for our purposes today, this is especially true when it comes to being a peacemaker. Because when it comes to being a peacemaker, the danger of pride, the filters pride can put on our vision is simply Simply, I don't want to be a peacemaker. And our vision gets narrowed and we say we don't want to be a peacemaker for a variety of reasons. For some of us, we don't want to be peacemakers because we're angry, because we're bitter, because we've been hurt. 
because that's all we seem to know and all we're holding on to. And the truth of the matter is we don't want to let go of that. Being a peacemaker means we would have to deal with that or God would have to forgive that in our lives or heaven forbid, God would have to forgive the people we're angry towards. You see, anger and bitterness can be a blinder that narrows our vision. For some of us, our blinder is apathy. We sit there and go, that sounds nice. That's a good teaching. Our world definitely needs peacemakers, but that's not me. Somebody else is going to do it. And our apathy comes oftentimes because we feel that we're too busy. Yeah, that sounds great, and I would love to be a peacemaker, but that would mean I would have to refocus my time, and my family is really busy, and we need to do this, and we need to do that, and I just don't think I have it in me. And so that becomes a filter that, that, that blinds our vision to what God is doing. A third thing that narrows our vision is we say, I don't want to become a peacemaker because of our own insecurity. We don't think we are good enough or have the ability to be these peacemakers. We hear a teaching like this, and it sounds like the varsity team of Christ followers. That, man, the people that are going to be peacemakers, they're like the good ones, the perfect ones, the ones that know everything. That is definitely not me. I can't do that because I still fail. I still sin. I'm still imperfect. And that puts a blinder on us. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus, through this beatitude, is removing all of our blinders to show us that he has called all of us to be peacemakers because that is who he is. Christ follower, because of the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the ability to be a peacemaker. Because of the fact that you have experienced the shalom and restoration from God, you have the ability to then go and show that to other people. And remember the beauty of God with all of these beatitudes, and specifically this one, is he doesn't say it and go, okay, figure it out, good luck. He takes up residence in you, in your new purified heart, and says, let's learn to do this together. And that's what we gain through perspective. I love how it's put there on your note sheet. The epic story of the Bible is one of redemption and shalom. The very reason God sent his son to earth was to reconcile us back into a loving relationship with him and to restore peace, shalom in that relationship and all others. He offers us shalom within ourselves, with those around us, and with our planet. And so when we talk about gaining perspective, when it means to being a peacemaker, it's a constant reminder that being a, pe- that being a peacemaker is core to God's identity, and now because of what he's done in my life, it is core to my identity as well. So practically speaking, how do we keep this perspective? Because we get distracted. We get blinded at times where our vision gets narrowed. So how do we put ourselves in situations where we are constantly being reminded? And there's many ways to do this, but one of the simplest and the most powerful ways is by regularly being in God's word. In fact, I want to use the word immersing ourselves in God's word, regularly seeing what he's teaching us because what we do, what happens when we're in God's word is he is revealing more of who he really is to us. What happens when we are in God's word is he is revealing this truth that he has come to restore peace and that's what his kingdom is all about. Now, there's a lot of ways to get involved and start regularly approaching God's word. And we're a diverse group and we're all gonna approach the word in different ways and that's good. But for those of you looking for a starting point specifically, how do you learn more or do more of a study about peace and shalom in God's word? I wanna give you an easy starting point. Many of you have heard us in the past talk about a free Bible app called the YouVersion app. Any of you download it, have it on your devices? 
If you're not familiar with YouVersion, like I mentioned, it is a completely free app that is a wonderful, wonderful tool to help us grow as Christ followers. And it provides many things for us. One, it provides the ability to read and have the Bible with us at all times because we always have our phones on us. It gives us the Bible in multiple different translations, offline, online. It even reads it for you. There's a very dramatic reading of it that's pretty awesome. But one other thing that YouVersion does is that it provides many reading plans, many devotionals that, again, are free, that help us get into the Word regularly, and especially on specific topics. If you open up the YouVersion van, down on the bottom, there's a tab called Plans. If you go to it, what you see are these readings, these devotionals, broken up on different topics. Let's say you want to learn more about what the Bible has to say about anger, or what the Bible has to say about humility, or what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. You're going to find it there. And yesterday, I did a search of peace to see what would come up, and so many different devotionals in bite-sized chunks, three days, five days, seven days. There's one in particular that I'm doing myself from Oswald Chambers about peace in our lives. And so that is an easy first step that's going to pay many, many dividends in the time to come. So if we want to maintain perspective, one of the best steps we can take is by being in God's Word and allowing Him to reveal who He really is to us through it. So that's the first step is perspective. The second step, if we want to become peacemakers, your second fill-in is humility. The second step is humility. And here's what I mean by this. The truth about being a peacemaker is that we are not going to become one on our own willpower. We need to be taught how to become a peacemaker. Because again, as I mentioned in the perspective point, sin did a number on us and it damaged things. It changed our very nature. And so if you think about the reality of being human beings, Living out peace, bringing peace, is not what comes naturally to us, is it? What comes naturally to us? The opposite of peace. Anger, destruction, division, destroying. That is what comes naturally. Look at the quote there on your note sheet. No matter what race or country we come from, none of us, would you underline that? None of us is naturally inclined to obey Jesus' commands to love our enemies. In fact, left to our own instincts, we are disposed to do just the opposite. And so when I say that humility is an, is an essential step, hear me very clearly. Humility is not thinking that we are awful. Humility is not thinking that we are lower than anybody else. But the truth is humility is strength. Humility is the strength and courage to say, I don't know how to do this. I need to be taught how. Humility is the strength to say that I need other people to show me how to live this out. I need God to show me how to be a peacemaker. I need other believers around me to show me how to be a peacemaker. Let me illustrate what I mean by this concept of humility. Do you know what this is? You can just shout it out if you recognize it. Eye drops, right? Nothing, not a strict question, just eye drops, visine going in. To you, these are eye drops. To me, this is a symbol of my humility because I am physically incapable of putting these drops in my own eyes by myself <laughs> because it 100% creeps me out. 
my entire life, I have never been comfortable with the idea of my eyes being touched, other people touching their eyes. I just can't do it. It makes my flesh crawl. I'm getting heebie-jeebies right now as we're talking about it. Very rarely in my life have I ever actually gone to an optometrist. And the few times I have, I felt like Jack Bauer being tortured for information. <laughs> Those of you that wear a context, you're so slick about how you do it. It's like nothing to you. I can't watch that happen. Has anybody in here had LASIK surgery done to their eyes? You are stronger than I ever will be because you literally laid there while they shot lasers into your eyes. I've been married for 11 and a half years and to this day, I cannot watch my wife apply eyeliner because it grosses me out. Now, because of that, over the years, I've debated the question, well, maybe I should just never bother with using eye drops. But then I realized, what's the alternative? Pain. What's the alternative? Impaired vision. What's the alternative? I'm not going to be 100%. And so what I need is I need the strength to be humble and say, I can't do this on my own. I need somebody else to help me. And thankfully, the Lord blessed me with a wife who's small but strong and doesn't care if I cry. Hear me clearly on this. Being a peacemaker, becoming a peacemaker is a journey. Becoming a peacemaker is a marathon. And on this journey, there are highs and there are lows. On this journey, there are successes and there are failures. But what keeps us moving forward on that journey is humility is the strength and courage to say, I need to continually be taught how to do this. I need to learn how to do this. And that's the core of being a disciple. Being a disciple means that you are a student. That is our approach and our posture to God and his kingdom. Teach me, Jesus, how to be more like you in all areas, but in this one for our focus today. Humility is strength. Humility is a willingness to be taught and to then live out that teaching. And so practically, how do we learn? How do we display this humility? How do we learn how to be a peacemaker? And there's two key ways, I think, that we do this. The first one we covered in the perspective point that we learn from God himself. We learn from those disciplines of being before him in his word, of praying, of worshiping, of gathering together here and hearing teaching over us. But a second core step of humility is we learn how to become peacemakers from other believers, from the body of believers around us. That's the beauty of what we call the church is that we gather as believers and we're all on this journey together and we can share support, we can share encouragement, we can share accountability with one another. The Bible paints a picture of iron sharpening iron. And think about it, when you bang those together, sometimes there's pain, but what is it doing? It's making a better product. And so one of the key ways that we often encourage you to learn from other believers is by joining a life group. We talk about it so much at Rocky Peak because that life groups really are the core of our church. What happens in a life group is we take this big group, we shrink it down to a small group of adults that meets once a week that are there for the same purpose. We are here to learn to do just what the title implies, to learn to do life together, this new life, this kingdom life together. And what happens in these life groups is we support each other on this journey through prayer. 
We support each other on this journey through wisdom, because believe it or not, you have wisdom, you have an experience that the Lord wants to use to encourage and spur on another believer. We support each other through accountability. When I go to my life group and say, I'm trying to show peace to this person in my life, but I'm struggling, my anger, my bitterness is getting in the way, I need your help. Hold me to a different standard, to the standard the Lord would have. That's what life groups are all about. And so if you're not in a life group, I just want to strongly encourage you, would you just prayerfully consider stopping on the patio on your way out and talk to somebody out there about being in a life group, what that would look like for you. And if you are in a life group for this next session, I want to encourage you, would you keep this at the forefront of your minds? Would you approach your life group with this goal that I want to learn how to be more of a peacemaker in my life? So that's the second step, humility. The third step and the final fill-in is the word initiative. If we are going to be the peacemakers we've been called to be, then what we need to do is we need to step up and take initiative. We need to step out of the crowd. You know, one thing that, has been, that the Lord keeps bringing me back to this la- these last several months is the phrase, rise up. And those of you that are with, have been with me as I've taught often on the stage, I often go back to that phrase, rise up, because I know that that's something the Lord is using to grow and stretch me in my own personal life. But I also know that that's a phrase that the Lord is giving us as a church, that we as the church at Rocky Peak, we need to rise up. And the reason why the Lord keeps bringing me back to it is just take a look at the world around us. We are living in a world that is divided. We are living in a global community that is divided. We are living in a nation that is divided. We We are living in a state that is divided. We are living in a neighborhood that is divided. We are living in families that are divided. We are living in bodies of believers that are divided. What we have is a world that does not know peace, that does not know where to find it. And when I come back to that phrase, the Lord is telling us, church, it is time to rise up. It is time for us to get up off the sidelines, to rise up, to enter a divided world that is searching for peace, that is searching for answers, and to tell them the truth about the kingdom of God, to tell them the truth that division does not exist in the shalom that God brings, that if we want our world to change, it's going to be because of committed, imperfect, transformed Christ followers who answer the call, who rise up, who go out these walls and bring shalom to the world around them. By rising up, we go out. And so there's two key areas in which we need to take initiative. The first area, we covered this a lot last week as we talked about purity in heart, so I'm not going to dig too much into it. But the first area is, are you taking the initiative to be a peacemaker in your daily, everyday life? See, again, we talked about this last week. If you remember, we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God is for all people in every situation, stage of life, any, every area. And so what God does is he transforms all kinds of people and sends them everywhere. We talked about this, that if you are on your kid's PTA, if you are a doctor, if you live in a specific neighborhood or apartment complex, if you are struggling in a stage of life, going through hardship or hurt, the reason the Lord has you there is to be a reflection to the people around you. 
And so the question we need to ask ourselves in our daily life is, are we taking the initiative and asking, how am I going to be a peacemaker today to who and what I come in contact with? That's the first step of rising up. But the second step is the one where we really need the Lord to transform us and grow us. And that's this. We need to rise up. We need to take the initiative and we need to become peacemakers with our enemies. Now, if you've been with us on this journey through the Beatitudes, have you noticed that this topic of loving our enemies has come up more than once? Because this radical love that is found in the kingdom of Jesus, that is a key defining mark of the transformation that comes with Jesus changing us. But I got to be honest with you, whenever this topic comes up, this idea of loving our enemies, in this case, this idea of taking the initiative and being a peacemaker to our enemies, if you're like me, that just stops me dead in my tracks. Because think about those people that you label enemies. These aren't the people that we're annoyed with. These aren't the people that we find to be nuisances or these aren't the people that might give slight roadblocks to what we're trying to accomplish in our day. When it comes to our enemies, these are the people that anger us deeply. These are the people that have hurt us in a soul-crushing way. These are the people that we are passionately angry towards for a variety of reasons. We may have that anger because of what they've done to us directly. We may have anger for a person or a group of people we haven't met, but because of what we see them doing or because of what we see them saying, we might have this anger because of different beliefs, different theology, different cultural standards. But whatever it is, these are the people that just frankly make our flesh crawl. And we have to ask this honest question, how in the world am I to be a peacemaker with them? How in the world am I to initiate being a peacemaker with these people that I've identified as my enemies? And this is a tough call. And this is a tough charge. And what I want to do, Rocky Peak, I want to take a moment where I'm just radically honest with you because that's what church is supposed to be all about. Church isn't a museum for perfect people. It's a home for the imperfect. I want to be honest with you that I deeply, deeply struggle with this, that recently more so than at other times. And I want to share with you the journey and the wrestling and the struggling and the truth that the Lord has shown me through this. And so with that, like, mo like most, if not all of you, I was completely heartbroken several weeks ago when I saw what was taking place in Charlottesville. Specifically, when I would follow the news and I would see these images of people flying Nazi flags. When I would see people wearing shirts with Adolf Hitler's face and his quotes on the back. When I would see people chanting and quoting Nazi ideology hailing the Nazi regime, hailing Hitler, I was deeply, deeply angry. Now hear me very clearly and hear my heart. This is not a political statement. 
I believe that the church is better by having multiple different political ideologies. As a church, we need Republicans, we need Democrats, we need Libertarians, we need the Green Party, we need everything in between. And in fact, those parties need committed Christ followers in them as well so that they would see the truth about who Jesus is. And while these parties often disagree, there are a few things that all of them unanimously would probably agree on, and this is one of them. The Nazis are evil. The Nazi ideology is never right. It is never okay. It is never appropriate. And so as I watched this happen, as I watched this happen, I found myself absolutely appalled in, a, in, in three key areas. One, first and foremost, I was appalled as a follower of Jesus because this thought and this belief of racial superiority of any race saying that they are superior and others are subhuman is absolutely wrong, is an affront to the gospel and the opposite of Jesus' heart for coming to all people. Secondly, I was appalled as an American citizen. I was appalled to see this happening in my own country. I remember reading a statement from Senator Orrin Hatch, who's a Republican senator, one of our longest serving senators, who saw what was happening and lamented by saying that his brother died in World War II fighting the Nazis, and now he's seeing their flags fly in 2017. But there was a third area in which I was appalled and heartbroken, and that was as a person of color. See, some of you may not see me that way, and that's okay, that's not a negative thing, but the reality is I'm a proud Latino man, that I'm the son of immigrants, that my parents left a bloody and a war-torn civil war in their home country to start a new life here in the United States, to sacrifice for their children to have the opportunity and the privileges that they didn't have. I'm a recipient of the American dream. I was the first one in my family that was born here in the States. Everything I have in my life, every opportunity I've been given has been built on the hard work and the sacrifice of my parents and what they came to do. And with that, every opportunity I've been given has been because of the beauty and the promise of this nation, of the United States of America. But with that, as a person of color, I have experienced racism in my life. My family has experienced racism in our lives. And so as I'm watching what's happened in Charlottesville, what I'm watching is my heart break. As I'm watching people declare me an enemy, sight unseen, simply because of the fact that my skin is a different color or the fact that my story is an immigrant story. It was difficult for me to see that, knowing the pain that is going through my parents' eyes, my siblings' eyes. It brought up hurts that we've experienced in the past because of who we are. It was heartbreaking because I reflected on my current family. I'm proudly in a mixed-race marriage. And to have to process that with my wife, whose heart is breaking, seeing that, to know that one day I'm going to have to explain to my children what this is all about and what that's going. And I found myself deeply, deeply angry. And as I was processing the events of Charlottesville with my wife, the scripture came up. This specific passage came up and my wife asked a very key question. How do we be peacemakers to them? How are we supposed to be peacemakers to those people waving those flags and carrying that ideology? And again, in radical honesty, Rocky Peak, up until that point, the thought had not even crossed my mind. 
the thought had not crossed my mind, let alone the idea of taking the initiative to do so. And with that question, I went before the Lord and I asked him, how am I supposed to live out this calling with those enemies of mine? How am I supposed to do this? And as I went before the Lord, Rocky Peak, I struggled. I found myself wrestling with the Lord because I know what peace means. God's peace means salvation. God's peace means restoration. God's peace means transformation. And in my sin, in my darkness, I found myself struggling, questioning with the Lord, do I want to see that happen to my enemies? Do I want to see you restore them? Do I want to see you transform them? I don't know if I do. I don't know if I want them let off the hook like that. And I wrestled before the Lord and I struggled with that. And in that moment, the Lord broke through and showed me his beauty. See, the Lord showed me how deep his peace runs. The Lord showed me new depth to what it means that he came to restore shalom for all people. See, the first thing the Lord reminded me of is that we can approach him in radical honesty. That we can approach him. I could bring my sin, my disgustingness, my darkness, my anger, my hatred. And he is not scared off by it, but he sees through it. The second thing that he reminded me of was again, what he means by peace. The Lord took me back to his word and he showed me a couple of different things. The Lord took me to Matthew not just the gospel, but to the person himself. He reminded me of Matthew's story, that Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a traitor to his race. Matthew signed up to work for the Roman government that was trying to erase Jewish culture and Jewish religion. Matthew had become rich and successful by blatantly robbing and stealing from his countrymen. Matthew was filled with evil and was a bad man, and yet... The Lord brought peace to Matthew's life. The Lord transformed him. The Lord restored him. And not just that, but the Lord called his followers to then make peace with Matthew as well. You know, this is completely fictional, but in my mind, when I think of Jesus calling the disciples, I've always wondered what that first lunch was like when they got together and saw all of who Jesus called. And I always have this image of some of them walking in, seeing Matthew and going, no way, that guy? And again, this beauty of this image of Jesus going, yes, that guy. The Lord took me to the Apostle Paul. See, we know Paul is one of the greatest missionaries our world has ever known. We know Paul as the author of the majority of the New Testament of our Bibles. But the Lord reminded me of who he was before Jesus came into his life. That when he was the man named Saul, and I don't use this word lightly, to the early church, he was a terrorist. Because of Paul's action, the church was persecuted. The church was splintered. The church had to go in hiding. Because of the actions of the Apostle Paul, believers in Jesus died. Because of the actions of the Apostle Paul's families were torn apart. Because of the actions of the Apostle Paul, churches were splintered and broken and set underground. If anyone was completing a checklist of reasons why they should fry for what they had done against Jesus, it would have been the man named Saul. And yet, the Lord brought peace to him. The Lord transformed him. The Lord changed him from the inside out. 
And then the Lord called his church to make peace with him as well. That they were rightfully so skeptical and scared when they first saw this man walk through their doors. But they stepped up to that call and look at the beauty of what they did after that. The Lord took me to his own death on the cross, to the lowest and darkest moment in the life of Jesus. That as he dies on this cross, in front of a hostile crowd that is mocking him. What does Jesus model for us in that moment? He doesn't model anger. He doesn't model vengeance, but he models being a peacemaker as he declares, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And we could go on and on with different examples of scripture. But as I sat before the Lord, as I wrestled as I struggled with it, what the Lord showed me again was his beauty that Jesus died to bring peace to all people. That Jesus died to bring restoration, transformation to all people. That Jesus died to love them, all of them. And what he's called me to do is the same. To die to my old self to step up and become more like him and to love in a way that only can come from God himself. And what's so beautiful about this is we're not left alone to do this. This is a big call and a difficult challenge, but the beauty of it is the Lord has taken up residence inside of us. He is with us, teaching us, guiding us, giving us perspective, giving us humility to be able to do this. And what I find in my own life, what the Lord reminded me through the struggle is that there have been times in my life where the Lord has asked me to do something difficult. And there have been times where I have struggled. There have been times where I have doubted. There have been times where I wondered, I feel like if I take that step of obedience, Jesus, it's going to lead to bondage. And what he has shown me each and every time is that when I take that step, it does not lead to bondage, but it leads to a place of freedom I have never experienced before. As God is, so now I am. And so he call, as he initiated peace with his enemies, he calls me to do the same. And so how do we begin this? What's the first step of doing this? Well, the first step doesn't even involve them. The first step begins with us and our hearts. See, the first step of initiating peace to my enemies is going before the Lord and having him teach me how to say a sincere prayer over my enemies, and that's may they experience your peace. May they experience your salvation. The first step is me before going before the Lord and having him remind me and teach me that he did not call me to be a maintainer of peace, but he called me to go and be a peacemaker. I like how it's there in your note sheet. God calls his children to be peacemakers. This involves action, not just passive compliance. Peacemakers do more than just live peaceful lives. They actively seek to make peace to cause reconciliation and to end bitterness and strife. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team to come on out. And about a week ago, we had a gathering in our student ministries where we gathered our junior high students, our high school students, our college and young adult age students. We gathered together to worship together on a Wednesday night. 
And it was then that I heard the song for the very first time. And it was a switch went on immediately. I knew that we needed to play this song this week. And so we're going to introduce a new song to you today. And the heart of the song is about remembering who we are in creation, that because of who God is, that is who I am, that just as God has active, so will I. And particularly, there's one line in the song that the Lord has kept bringing back to my mind over the last week and a half. It's not even a line that's heavily focused in the song, but it's one that pierced my heart, and it's this, if you gave your life to love them, so will I. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. And that has become my prayer over the last week or so. Lord, if you gave your life to love all of them, then so will I. Teach me how to do this. And so Rocky Peak, as we go into this time of worship, I want to encourage you. Let's make this our prayer. Let's make this our declaration that as he is, so will we. That if he gave his life to love them, so will we. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you that you are our teacher. We thank you that you are the one that brings us perspective. We thank you that you are with us when the journey becomes difficult. We thank you that you modeled for us how to love our enemies. And so as we sing this song, may it be a declaration of us as individuals, may it be a declaration of us as a church, may it be a declaration of our very souls that we are saying, as every, all of creation will worship you, so will I, that we will listen, we will follow. If you died to love them, then so will we. This is our declaration. This is our prayer. We commit this time to you, Jesus, in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You know, the song is such a beautiful reminder that as God is, so are we. That as God does, so will we. And again, there's so much beauty in it, but I keep going back to that line. If you died to love them, then so will I. If you died to love them, then so will I. If Jesus died for a world that was hostile in his enemies, then that is my call. But I don't rise up on my own. I rise up on his power. And so Rocky Peak, as we leave this place this week, I want you to remember who you are. You are a peacemaker because of the shalom that has been restored to you. You are a child of the king. You are his sons and his daughters. You are called to rise up and go out into the world that needs peace and to show them the truth and beauty of Jesus. As we leave this place, as we go about our weeks, may we be people that declare and remember that, that if you die just to love them, so will I. If you want to pray with somebody before you leave this place, in whichever venue you're in, over along the wall to my right, there's some men and women from our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you. Rocky Peak, I got to say, thank you for hanging with us and going into overtime this, uh, this service. But I knew that it was something that the Lord really wanted to do in the heart of our church. So thank you for that. Hey, next week, we're going to be continuing our series. Michael's going to be up here teaching. But one thing I want to highlight before we go is inside your uh, program, you've noticed these small invite cards for a new series we're going to be kicking off with. Uh, called 40. It's a series all about transformation. And through it, we're going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of our church, of Rocky Peak. We're going to take some time to look at where we've been and to look at where the Lord is leading us. So not only do I want to encourage you to be a part of it, but I want to encourage you to take that flyer and invite somebody to come and hear about what God is doing in the heart of our church. I love you, Rocky Peak. We'll see you next weekend.